This past October, I had the, the great good fortune to take a four-week sabbatical away from the monastery. And when I was planning it a few years ago, one of the brothers suggested that I contact an old friend for a place to stay. Uh, this friend happens to be a university fellow who teaches in linguistics. So he was able to arrange for me to have library access during my visit so I could use my time away from administrative work to read in theology and philosophy, which I enjoy doing when I have the time for it. My friend, whose name is Bert, is an interesting fellow. He has a genuine gift for language. When I met him, he was 20 years old. Uh, we met in college, and he was already fluent in eight languages or something like this. About 20 years ago, when he was already teaching, he conducted a nationwide survey of American dialects. And the results of this survey uh, crop up on the Internet uh, every few months. And uh, there are these questionnaires that will pop up on Facebook and things and say, you know, take these answer these 20 questions and we'll tell you where you grew up, right? Because different regions of the country have different words that they use for different things. So, for example, you'll be asked, uh, do you use the word expressway or freeway or highway or interstate? Uh, do you say y'all or do you say you guys for plural people? And then you'll get two cities that will match, uh, the closest matches, and uh, my mother's sister stumbled upon this survey. She grew up in central Wisconsin and then moved to the Twin Cities, and her two closest matches were Madison and Minneapolis. So it was pretty amazing. Uh, but during my visit, we talked a lot about language, and Bert told me that there are certain objects that he got so many responses for the different words that people used for them that it wasn't useful information. You couldn't localize any of it. And what was interesting was that many of these words uh, come from the home or from the body. And our speculation, as we talked about this, was that these sorts of words are passed on from mother to child, and they don't necessarily leave the home, uh, so they don't get sort of public exposure and are shared among uh, a local neighborhood, for example. They just get passed on through families. For example, uh, what do you call the gooey and crusty stuff that's in your eyes when you wake up in the morning? Uh, Bert received hundreds and hundreds of responses. And this was, again, only in English, by the way, right? And only American English. But English is among the most spoken languages on the planet, but as we all know, there are many, many other languages and lots and lots and lots of different words. Human beings are ingenious at coining words. Next month, the Oxford English Dictionary will come out with its annual list of new words that made it into common enough usage to merit a dictionary entry. Last January, the editors added, among dozens of other entries, commodify and e-shopping. Other recent additions are word salad, photobomb, non-apology, and clickbait. And this profusion of words is, I say, a characteristic of us as human beings. We're very inventive. And so when we hear on Christmas morning that God's word was in the beginning and became flesh, it's worth contrasting this single word that God speaks, spoken once for all, with the multiplicity of words that human beings speak. The multiplication of words is typical of humans, but it is also, I think we know, problematic. So the book of Proverbs warns that where words are many, sin is unavoidable. 
Our contemporary word blizzard tends to blur meaning, and it makes it hard to separate out truth from fiction. This is why we have accusations of fake news being thrown around all the time. Now, we're told that this confusion of language is actually God's design. Uh, God instituted it as a result of the Tower of Babel. And God does nothing without intending our salvation, our good. So the fact that we speak different languages and that languages mutate over time has to be seen as something important to us. For one thing, it makes it very clear. So again, in the story of the Tower of Babel, the people wanted to be like God. They wanted to make a name for themselves. But the fact that our language is confused and God speaks simply one word means that we are not God. God's word is always creative. When God says, let there be light, light exists. And the light is good. Human beings, we can create things with words, but we also can detract, destroy, lie, slander, flatter, bully, and pander. This means that we need to choose our words carefully and perhaps exercise more restraint of speech than we're accustomed to. Another interesting thing about God speaking a single word is that this doesn't mean that we all hear it the same way. Uh, and, I mean, we don't hear human words the same way. It's always interesting to hear what people take from one's homily. It's not always what one intends. Uh, but when God speaks his one simple word into the world, uh, each of us receives it according to our individuality. So when the Israelites ate the manna in the desert... There's a tradition that says that each one found it pleasing to his or her own taste. That the bread from heaven matched the uniqueness of each of God's children. Because it is the one word, hearing God's word together, even if we hear it as individuals, leads us back to God, leads us back into the unity that God intended for us before Babel. And this is a unity that's not based on human pretension or on the tendency of the stronger to impose meaning on the weaker. Uh, it's a unity that's based in God's love and God's self-gift to us. So hearing this word of God is also a different kind of exercise for another reason. That's because God's word has uniquely become human. And by entering into our experience as human beings, Jesus Christ has sanctified all human experience. Whenever we have a significant experience, we naturally want to share it with someone. You know the saying, grief shared is halved, joy shared is doubled. We have this need to share our own personal experience and meaning with others. We also know that no matter how hard we might try to share our gifts, our griefs, and our joys with our fellow human beings. To do this, we have to rely on words, and there's always this possibility of being misunderstood or ignored uh, or being taken the wrong way in some ways. The words as we speak them, they, they mutate in meaning as they leave our lips. So this is an invitation to share our lives first and most profoundly with the one word, who knows and loves us because he made us. We were made through God's word. His coming in the flesh tells us it's all right to be human. It's a good thing. With all of the tiny pleasures, with all the aches and pains, large and small, 
with all the heartache, disappointment, triumph, loss, routines, mistakes, embraces, skinned knees. And what's more, our Lord coming in the flesh means that he identifies with our situation from the inside. He knows what it's like to be human, have all those limitations, all those joys, all that potential. He understands human nature and experience actually better than we do, uh, but he proves it by becoming one of us. He can unlock our experience, explain it to us, help us to enter into it more profoundly by being God with us. And once we have this insight, uh, we needn't struggle to say lots of words. It's enough to know Jesus Christ. We can be like St. John Vianney, who when he was asked what he was doing in his hours of adoration, responded, nothing. I just look at him and he looks at me. And this gaze is at once familiar and transcendent, human and divine.